Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the last witches of England fighting in Ukraine at the end of the Second World War, surviving the famine in Kenmare, the rise, fall and rise again of the country house in Britain. And to end the show, we look at Mozart's music and his world. Last week, we looked at the life and legacy of the remarkable Jewish scholar Maimonides. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with The Last Witches of England. In 1682, three women of Biddeford came to be forever defined as witches. Condemned to the gallows, they were the last group of women to be executed in England for the crime. And a brilliant new book tells their story. The book is called The Last Witches of England, A Tragedy of Sorcery and Superstition. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Academic. The author is John Callow. And John, thanks a million for joining us tonight. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be with you. The first question, I suppose, is about the year. It's 1682, late on in the 17th century. It seems some somewhat late, perhaps, for uh, there to be a trial for witchcraft and for, for women to be executed for the crime. Well, that's, that's precisely right. It's, it is the first of many anomalies about the Biddeford case. And Biddeford and the Biddeford witches, defy many of those easy assumptions I think we make about witchcraft and the age of persecution. As you say, it's the reign of Charles II. It's an era more normally associated with the the Royal Society, with Etonian science, with a a new world of, of empire and commercial development, rather than something that tends to be seen as backward looking as witchcraft. It's urban witchcraft rather than rural. And I think it's strikes at our belief in progress. So for all those grounds, I think it's uh, it's a fascinating case study of inhumanity, of prejudice, and violent legalised death. You mentioned the anomalies, and I suppose another anomaly is the fact that uh, Biddeford wasn't a, a rural area, or it, and it wasn't a poor area, it actually was a, a successful urban environment. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating place at the time. It's developing very rapidly. It's a major seaport. It's one of the main areas that tobacco and goods are coming into England from New England, from the American colonies. It's got a very cosmopolitan society. It's a home to lots of different immigrant groups. And we tend to think of geography in terms of road connections and motorways and all those things today. But for the 17th century, the roads were in a pretty, pretty bad state. And it was actually the sea lanes that were important. So Biddeford, despite what we might think today of its remote location, was connected with Ireland, with northwest England, with the American colonies. So people in those areas had more in common and more contact with Biddeford folk than maybe the remoter areas of Devon and Cornwall, which were geographically far nearer. So it's a prosperous trading place. It's a, it's a place of enterprise, and it's a place of incredible wealth, but incredible wealth that didn't trickle down, and the gap between rich and poor got worse and worse over this period. So talk to me about the events then that led to this accusation and this prosecution. It, why, why were these women accused of witchcraft and put on trial, and how did it all seem to just get out of hand so quickly? Well, through, through bad luck, 
uh, and through circumstance, really, and through prejudices. The, the three women we're looking at were marginal in almost every aspect, and in every aspect that mattered to 17th century women and men. They were marginal because of their gender. They were women. They were marginal because of their age. They were elderly. They were marginal because they were very poor. They were pretty much as, you know, on the level of starvation amidst all this plenty. And they were also marginal in terms of the fact that they were all by that time unmarried, either widows or people who'd never been married. And they had no familial group, no family to back them up and no friends to speak for them. So that made them outsiders in every grounds that really counted. On top of that, they earned their crust quite literally by begging. They were, you know, resented in the local community for reminding wealthier people of their poverty, for getting in the way, sometimes for extorting money or goods with, with curses or threats. And they began, certainly in the case of Temperance Lloyd, the, the major character we know about, she had had a reputation for being a witch or casting the evil eye for a very long time. So she's first accused more than a decade before in 1671, then again in 1679, and then fatally in 1682. So these conflicts between neighbours are really deep-seated. They're sores that scar Biddeford on every level. They're bubbling away quite literally under the surface. And it's this marginal position that allows the women to be exposed to these allegations that come from their neighbours um, and people who are far more fortunate than they are in that society. And one of the women accused, Mary Trembles, had, a, had an Irish background. As far as we know, yes. Um, from the north of Ireland, as I, as I said earlier, there are lots of Irish connections between the West Country, um, the cattle trade in particular, the potteries, Irish goods and people are flowing through Biddeford. It's an age of exchange, it's an age of discovery. And at the, at the bottom of the pile is Mary Trembles, who comes with her parents to Biddeford as Irish immigrants and is distinguished from the first as an outsider. She is unfortunate. Her parents are beggars. She never seems to have known a minute of comfort. And things go badly wrong for her. Once mum and dad die, she's absolutely on her own and abject and falls into a life of absolute poverty. So there is an Irish connection. What happened then afterwards? How come these were the last women to be to be hanged for witchcraft? Uh, why did it all then suddenly come to a, an end? Well, for a number of reasons, I think um, that there is a big there is a big battle being worked out or fought out quite literally across the 17th century about how God is seen. Is God imminent? The sort of Old Testament God who throws around thunderbolts and is in a daily battle with the devil. Or is and that brings us to the end of another edition like, of think, Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Marisa Sullivan, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. On Next week we'll bring our show on Samuel Taylor Coleridge for the St. Patrick's Day holiday long weekend. And, and then in two weeks' time we'll discuss the murder maps of the USA, the 1798 rebellion in Wexford, and the diaries of Winston Churchill's daughter during the Second World War. So join us next week and the week after on News Talk in Talking History. You know his his presence in in all kinds of in all kinds of everyday affairs and all kinds of life in in providence. You know if we think about Calvinism, this idea of this continual battle. So religious ideas are changing are one of the motors. 
the witchcraft prosecution's declining. I think some of the societal problems are worked out. Charity is handled in a different way. Neighbourly disputes are handled in a different way. You've, of course, got the rise of the scientific revolution. The world is being seen through increasingly the, the eyes, well, through enlightened eyes. And then we have, about the time all this is unfortunately happening to the Biddeford witches, a number of quite courageous judges, mainly uh, Sir John Holt, who actually effectively stop the prosecution and the legal mechanism for prosecuting witches. They turn everything on it, he turns everything on its head, but it's the proof of the, the accusation that's now to be judged and not primarily the guilt of the witch. So things like spectral evidence, the thing that erupts in the Salem trials across the water in, in New England, are thrown out of court. And if you think about it, if you can say that a spirit that no one else can see but you is actually there in the courtroom and telling you all this bad stuff and is being directed against you by the accused, and that is evidence, as we might think of as a you know a bloody dagger or a stolen wallet or any of those things of corporeal evidence that the court might look at, once that is not allowed, it becomes a lot easier to acquit poor women and occasionally poor men who are sent for trial as witches. So scepticism among the elite, a losing, redefined religious battle and societal changes and the rise of science, I think, are the main reasons for the decline of witchcraft belief and persecution. OK, well, it's a remarkable story. The Last Witches of England, a tragedy of sorcery and superstition. The book is published in hardback by Bloomsbury Academic. The author is John Callow. And John, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's an absolute pleasure. Many thanks for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book shows how the Red Army turned the tide of war in 1944 until the final defeat within the heart of Germany itself was guaranteed. The book is called The Reckoning, The Defeat of Army Group South, 1944. It's published in paperback by Osprey Publishing. The author is Prit Buttar. And Prit, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a fascinating story and and a lot of it comes down to sources because usually we we say that history is written by the victors, but you actually show that we've perhaps relied too much on English language sources that come from German officers and and that's given us maybe a, a flawed and, and an inaccurate perspective on this conflict. I think that's right. And the the background to this is such that it was inevitable we were going to get a distorted version of history, um, the legacy of the Cold War, where our former ally on the other side of Germany became the enemy, um, the uh, detrimental influence of official Soviet uh, dogma on how the war was to be described and what could be said and what couldn't be said. Um, it was no wonder that we ended up with so many distortions, particularly as the German accounts appeared in the 1950s and 1960s, at a time when an awful lot of these um, former uh, Wehrmacht officers were now part of the the, um, the military establishment in the new West Germany. Um, so you can see why there were so many um, pressures, if you like, to, uh, to generate this very distorted version of, of events. So talk to me about some of the myths that developed and, 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 and how they persisted. This idea, I suppose, that 
the, 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 the Russian army, the Soviet army, the Red Army, you know, was kind of this blunt instrument that it wasn't sophisticated, that, you know, the Germans lost the, the, the war rather than that the Russians came to win it. And it leaves out the nuance and sophistication in, in how the, the Russians approached the conflict. Well, that's right. And there is this sort of fascinating parallel evolution that um, in 1941, when the conflict between Germany and the Soviet Union started, um, the Germans were doing pretty much everything right. They had a very well-organized command structure. They had highly skilled and experienced and independent-minded officers um, who were able to make decisions on the fly without having to wait for orders from above. At at that time, the Red Army was still struggling as a result of Stalin's purges of the 1930s. Officers were very, very reluctant to do anything without uh, explicit permission. Um, And then as the war goes on, you get this complete inversion as Stalin learns to uh, relax the the control that he has been attempting to uh, exert over the military. The military learns how to think for itself. And remember, they're having to do these transitions in the most testing of circumstances when they're literally fighting for their lives. And on the other hand, you have the Germans going backwards where their command structure is becoming more and more rigid not least because they're losing so many uh, personnel, but also because Hitler trusts his officers less and less. And you, and the end result is that by 1944, the, the hard-fought uh, lessons that the Red Army has been learning from the preceding years finally um, bear fruit. Um, and by the end of 19, well, by, by the summer of 1944, there's really no doubt uh, which side is going to, to come off better in anything approaching an even contest. So it's not simply a question of the size of the armies and numbers. It's down to this painful evolution that you, that you, that you, that you characterise, that you show. Well, very much so. And even from the very early days of 1941, the Red Army had um, a very rigorous system of trying to analyse uh, the, the the campaign that had just closed to try to see what lessons could be learned because they realized very early on that pretty much everything they went into the conflict with was wrong. Um, their training was wrong, their doctrine was wrong, much of their equipment was wrong, um, and they desperately needed to learn uh, a new way of fighting if they weren't going to get wiped out. Um, now, the problem was, of course, it's you know as we all know, it's one thing to identify what's wrong it's quite another thing to come up with the right solution to that problem. So a lot of these, you know, you see the same mistakes being made again and again, um, even though they've identified the mistake, because the solutions that were offered first time around were perhaps not uh, not the right ones. Um, but they persevered with this, and they, they learned and they learned and they learned and they improved. Uh, at, and at the same time, the Germans were going in the other direction, um, um, an increasingly rigid um, command structure, increasing problems with supplies, um, and just running out of the high-quality personnel with which they had started the war. So, when when people rely just on the German accounts, what are the myths that they've that and the traps that they've fallen into? What have they they come to believe that isn't correct? The first thing is what you've already touched on, which is this mythology of um, the Germans lost the war because of the great 
Soviet steamroller. Um, it was this highly unskilled horde from the east that just washed over them, and they fought this heroic battle, inflicting huge losses on the Red Army. And, and if it hadn't been for the mistakes of that idiot Hitler, um, they would have prevailed. Um, and you know, they had better equipment. Their tanks were superior. They had all of this this highly sophisticated kit. And the reality is actually very, very different um, to take those in, in not necessarily the same order. For example, um, a lot of their equipment may well have been more advanced and more complex, but that also brought with it its own problems. For example, um, the Panther tank, which entered service in 1943 and was uh, in many respects the mainstay for some of the formations in the months that followed, they lost more of those due to mechanical breakdown than from enemy action. Um, simple things like this, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union, on the other hand, had standardized ruthlessly on with a very, very efficient, straightforward design where even if the tanks broke down, they could be fixed very, very easily. Um, and by 1944, all sorts of uh, differences were developing between the two sides. Well, it's a brilliant book. The Reckoning, The Defeat of Army Group South, 1944, published in paperback by Osprey Publishing. The author is Prit Buttar. And Prit, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you again for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book tells the story of a remarkable man's efforts to help starving people during the Irish Great Famine. And it throws new light on the relationship between class, religion and poverty in Ireland before independence. The book is called Ken Mare, History and Survival, Father John O'Sullivan and the Famine Poor. It's published in paperback by Eastwood Books. The author is Colm Kenny. And Colm, you're very welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Can we begin with uh, John O'Sullivan because he really is this remarkable figure and he's someone who was very much loved by the people. I don't think the the church hierarchy uh, had quite the same view of him because he was a somewhat independent figure and, and perhaps the landlords would have had a different view of him as well. He, he really did play such an important role. So who was he and what drove him? Uh, what drove him most was the needs of the people in the Kenmare workhouse during the famine, that's for sure. Um, but where he came from uh, was a very ordinary family in Tralee uh, at a time when the uh, Catholic Church was beginning, I suppose, to re- restore itself uh, and to um, move into a position of uh, development and authority in Ireland that was uh, to continue to rise until the foundation of the state uh, and he was sent to Kenmare, which was a very new and very small town, obviously, in a remote part of Kerry. He was sent there in 1839, uh, and of course he arrived just a few years before the famine began. So the whole catastrophe came on him uh, not long after he got there as parish priest. And one of the remarkable things is that he kept journals, which have never been published, but which have survived in Killarney uh, diocesan archive uh, and these are really a wonderful source of information about life in Kerry and life in Ireland at that time but also about how he responded to the great catastrophe that he found himself at the centre of. And you mentioned there the, the unpublished journals there are a whole range of of sources that you use in the book and many of them have never been used before and it shows how there are maybe uh, different sources out there, new sources out there that, that throw new light and offer new perspectives on periods of Irish history. 
I think it, it does, and, and it, it's, it's wonderful how uh, local historians have been able to salvage some of these records. The entire collection of minutes and records of the Kenmare Workhouse, uh, dozens of volumes, were thought to have been lost. But some years ago, uh, uh, a man in Kenmare set out to look for them, and he eventually found them in a building, uh, in a public building, in the attic of a public building in Dingle. Uh, and they're now safe in the Kerry County Library in Tralee. Uh, and again, I was able to dip into these, and they're just an enormous resource. I, I mean, there's enough in them for a number of books. Uh, and still, local historians keep alive so many memories and so many records and, and are a great source of information for somebody writing a book like this. And then, of course, there, there are other records. And one of the remarkable things about Father John O'Sullivan was that he managed to get himself to London a few times on behalf of his uh, parishioners. And he, he made personal friends with Sir Charles Trevelyan, the great, uh, powerful civil servant of Trevelyan's corn in the song, to such an extent that he actually was invited to dinner and stayed in Trevelyan's house. But he also got himself into the uh, Association for the Relief of Famine in Ireland that was set up by very wealthy bankers for the name part in London. And he managed to get himself before that twice, uh, to appear in person at a time when they had only heard two other uh, petitioners in person. So he, he was a resourceful individual who lobbied very hard for his people. He got himself into a parliamentary committee as well to give evidence and gave quite striking evidence. He, he, he wasn't there simply to beg. He was there with solutions. He'd met Lord Devon uh, uh, Commission when, when it was in Dublin looking at the use of land shortly before the famine. And here he was back in Parliament, um, making friends, making contacts, uh, and putting forward economic arguments and social arguments for reform. He was a great defender of the poor laws, and he argued that the poor had a right to relief, an entitlement, which was quite radical for his day, of course, when people thought this was something should be left up to charity. And is that why he wasn't the the favourite priest of the, the hierarchy and why they even blocked him when there was a chance he might become Bishop of Kerry? Uh, I think that had more to do with his views on the, uh, the church itself. He was quite critical of some of the administration in the church for not doing more. Uh, and he also didn't particularly like uh, the, the direction in which uh, the church was going theologically. Uh, I mean, he, he took exception to the dogma of the Immaculate Conception at one point, for instance. He said he never had to study it as a dogma when he was at Maynooth. He didn't think it was necessary. And while nobody had more respect than he did for the vigour of the mother And of that Jesus, brings us to the end of another edition of, of Talking really History. Useful. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together. Marisa Sullivan, my producer, and Peter Malloy. Going on out on Next week we'll bring you our show on Samuel Taylor Coleridge for the St. Patrick's Bank holiday them. long weekend. Uh, and and then in two weeks' time we'll discuss the murder maps of the USA, the 1798 rebellion in Wexford, and the diaries of Winston Churchill's daughter during the Second World War. So join us next week and the week after on News Talk. Been talking with history. His, uh, and when he was chosen to become Bishop of Kerry uh, after Cornelius Egan uh, by, the, by the priests of Kerry, and then indeed by the bishops of Munster who agreed with that, uh, Cullen stepped in and uh, stopped his, um, his promotion to, the, to, to Bishop, uh, and Moriarty got it, got it instead. So he was a peculiar mixture of, of radical uh, uh, and reformer, and on the other hand, like many many parish priests, he opposed violence 
uh, violent or secret organisation. He didn't like the Young Irelanders. He didn't like the Fenians. And he called himself a bear repealer. Um, so he was an interesting individual. And I think looking at his life, you see it wasn't all black and white then. That, that it's not the simplistic version of a society that we sometimes get. It's a great way into seeing the different nuances and the different kinds of uh, social and economic forces on both sides. Uh, for instance, some of his best friends, as they say, were Protestant ministers. But on the other hand, he is credited, and somewhat reliably, with having been the priest to coin the phrase supers to describe proselytizers. Canon O'Rourke, for instance, the great a priest historian of, of the church of the 19th century it gives him credit for it. He claimed credit himself. And the Folklore Commission uh, has evidence of people locally crediting him with this, this, uh, this coining this phrase supers to describe the people who were trying to lure Catholics away from their faith during the famine. There is a fascinating personal connection uh, to O'Sullivan that got you, I think, first interested in this story. Well, indeed, uh, my, 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 my grandmother uh, had left in the family a handwritten copy of a long letter O'Sullivan had written during the famine uh, involved, uh, to do with his clash with a local landlord, Dennis Mahoney. Uh, and I, this had lain among, in a box of our family papers um, for a long time. And it was only when I took it out one evening and began to see it and, and decided to follow up on it that I realised how interesting an individual he was, and I discovered that um, we were related. Uh, his his uh, grandfather was a linear um, descendant, or rather my grandmother was a, was a descendant from his linear grandfather. Um, they both went back to uh, uh, a man in Kerry who was the captain of a ship in Dingle. He used to bring uh, butter to Lisbon and wine back from Lisbon to Kerry. Uh, but unfortunately, he went down with a ship in a storm in the end and was never seen again. So this got me very interested. and. There are just fascinating aspects to it. I mean, there was a connection to Terence Babington Macaulay, who's, um, who's sometimes in a cliche described as uh, the great British historian. In his um, four-volume history of England, he remarkably has a very long, relatively very long history of Ken Mayer embedded in it, uh, which turns out to be self-serving because uh, Babington Macaulay, he was related to, to Trevelyan. His, his sister was married to him. But he was also beholden to Lord Lansdowne, the great Lansdowne uh, landlord, one of the biggest landlords in Ireland who owned thousands of acres in Kerry. Lansdowne had got him a seat in Parliament. Uh, and in a way, Babington was writing this history of Ken Mayer to gratify the settlers and the landlords who had come in. Uh, and I devote a whole chapter in the book to, to deconstructing that, because I think you have to reset the uh, origin of Ken Mayer and the background to Ken Mayer to fully understand where Father John O'Sullivan is coming from. Uh, and I found that very interesting, and I found the connection uh, to Macaulay something that I think people will will uh, find quite intriguing. Well, it's a remarkable history of Ken Mayer during one of the darkest periods of Irish history. The book is called Ken Mayer, History and Survival, Father John O'Sullivan and the Famine Poor. The book is published in paperback by Eastwood Books. The author is Colm Kenny. And Colm, uh, thanks a million for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. 
The country house in Britain flourished for centuries, but then fell into decline before enjoying a renaissance in the 21st century. And a new book explores the genesis, the style, the purpose of these architectural masterpieces, as well as looking at their endurance today. The book is called The Story of the Country House, A History of Places and People. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author is Clive Aslett. And Clive, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks for having me on. Can we begin straight away with the question of why these houses, why these country houses were built in the first place? Well, uh, for a long time, they, land was a very uh, good investment and that's what people wanted to have. And um, well, in the Middle Ages, that took the form of manors and great people had loads of manors scattered all over the countryside. And so uh, they travelled between their manors and... Um, the halls where justice was dispensed grew into the places where they stayed. They they weren't country houses in those days in our sense. They were because people arrived with all their uh, furniture and all their cooking things, and it was more like sort of a very grand kind of camping. But uh, the importance of land remained really uh, central until the 1870s when there was a big agricultural depression. Uh, and uh, for all that time, um, land was what really uh, was what really drove it. I suppose also one has to say status. It's noticeable that a great number of MPs wanted to have country houses in the 18th century. The book is subtitled A History of Places and People and there are some remarkable places discussed here and some remarkable people as well, including the architects who were involved. And I thought what was really interesting was that sometimes people were hugely impressed with what they came up with, but occasionally people were shocked and horrified by by what was what was built. Um, well, uh, yes, uh, there were both, uh, both, uh, both reactions. Uh, and sometimes the people who were building these places uh, intended to shock. Uh, that was particularly true in the Regency period, where they were discovering ideas about the sublime, and uh, that was thought to be a form of aesthetic enjoyment, that things would be uh, a little bit scary. Um, and so there were extraordinary houses built uh, then. Of course, very famously, William Beckford, who was, in any case, um, a social outcast, built an enormous tower to Fonthill Abbey, huge thing designed by uh, James Wyatt, which then, after he had sold it, collapsed. And to be fair to Beckford, he did give the purchaser all his money back, but um, uh, it was it, it, it probably not regarded as being in the best of taste by a lot of his contemporaries. Why did they go into decline? Was it that it was just too expensive to maintain them? And because I think th- there is that renaissance now, but for a time it really looked like it was the end of the uh, end of the road for these country houses. Yes, well, I think it began with that agricultural depression, which I mentioned in the eighteen seventies. Um, there was some new rich. It was rather like today, in a sense. There were some new, very rich people coming on the scene around nineteen hundred, and they didn't really care if they wanted. Um, an agricultural estate. It was because they wanted to hunt over it or shoot over it, something like that. Um, but uh, for for people who depended for their money from um, agricultural rents, it was becoming very difficult. So the traditional aristocracy were looking for other means of supporting themselves. Of course, they married a lot of uh, very rich and heiresses as they could get their hands on them. But um, but that 
uh, uh, undermined the economic foundation of the traditional country house, and they became something which was a bit different, something which was more about uh, pleasure and enjoyment. But but uh, a lot of traditional owners didn't have the money to maintain them, and then then along came the two world wars, which were really the coup de grace for um, many country houses because uh, taxation was so high afterwards. Um, a number of houses lost uh, the people, the, the, the heirs who were going to carry on the line. Um, so that really became extremely difficult. And the nadir was reached, I think, after the Second World War, when um, some people like Evelyn Waugh, writing Brideshead Revisited, thought thought that the end had come. But uh, it's, it's proved, the as a building type, as an idea, it's proved remarkably resilient. They weren't necessarily great for privacy, though, and that might be a surprise because even in their glory days, <laughs> uh, you might not have quite the, the the security you might like. No, that, that's absolutely true. Uh, I think that um, these days people are very often motivated to buy country houses by the thought that they will be private and that it will be a place that they can escape from the rest of the world, particularly celebrity-type people who... Um, now, uh, uh, very conscious of the fact that they can be snapped on mobile phones when they're in cities. But uh, throughout the history of the country house, it's only uh, in, well, really, since the Second World War that people have had anything like privacy as we would understand it. And in many ages, the concept really barely existed. And certainly in the um, 18th century, if you look at um, uh, legal records of divorce cases, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's very, very clear that uh, every everything that the owners of the house did was observed by servants. They were sometimes called upon to give evidence in these divorce cases. And it's quite clear that the servants did, did, did absolutely everything they could to uh, keep tabs on their masters and mistresses. And, um, you know, we would find that horrifying. But I suppose in previous centuries, if you lived in um, in a country house, you, you, you couldn't run them without servants, and, and people simply accepted that that's how it was. Is there a particular country house that's your favourite, either in terms of its architectural style or things that went on in it, or just something that stands out in its history? Oh, well, um, uh, it's, that's a difficult question to answer, because uh, I've spent a lot of my life uh, writing about country houses. I used to edit the magazine Country Life, which um, always carries a long article on a country house each week. So um, I have seen quite a number and fallen in love with um, uh, a huge number. But one I, I'm very, very attached to is Madrasfield Court, which is um, which has fascinating, is, is a beautiful place. It's marvelously looked after by the family. But uh, it was very important in the life of Evelyn Waugh, and when he was writing Brideshead Revisited, which I mentioned, he really based it on the life of that family. And um, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, it was a real place of art. And um, the Earl Beecham had uh, uh, a lot of children, and he um, he himself loved the arts. They commissioned a lot from the arts and crafts movement. He himself was an amateur sculptor. Unfortunately, he he was also um, uh, bisexual, and uh, and he had to leave the country and 
um, and and go live and go live abroad, which was um, uh, which was tragic. But it meant that this young family, the, the children, were still able to go on living in the house in their early twenties, and it was kept up to the nines with the butlers, the servants, everything going on. And even War, when he visited, thought this was absolutely fantastic, and this was the genesis of of that novel, Bryce had revisited. So that's one which which particularly speaks to me, if you like. Wonderful. Well, you can read a lot more about these country houses in the book. It's called The Story of the Country House, A History of Places and People, published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author is Clive Aslett. And Clive, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History. History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Mozart is one of the most familiar and beloved icons of our culture. But how much do we really understand of his music and what it can reveal to us of the great composer? Well, a new book explores why Mozart's works still move us so intensely today as we continue to search for a modernity he imagined into being. The book is called Mozart in Motion, His Work and His World in Pieces. The book is published in hardback by Granta Books. The author is Patrick Mackey. And Patrick, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Let's begin with, I suppose, the first thing about his world, because it, it was a world in which music really mattered. That's right. Yeah, that was one of the things that, uh, that, that in a way, was a discovery that I made in, in writing about the 18th century. I was drawn into the century because of the music and because of caring about it so passionately. Uh, but actually what I found was that, uh, you know, that the, the century was obsessed with music. It was a sort of craze. It was all over the place. And in ways that actually, you know, my knowledge of the history of the period and the uh, historiography of the Enlightenment and so on had really left out. So, um, so yeah, I, I sort of came for the music and then found that the music told me about everything else, too, and took me in any number of different directions. Excellent. And you mentioned the Enlightenment there. What was the influence of the Enlightenment on Mozart? Because again, as you say, normally his story is told maybe as maybe just completely separate to all of that. But as you show, it's it's very much influenced and perhaps in its own way influences it itself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. There, there was sort of there were several strands to it, and it's sort of understandable in a way that it's been slightly left out of some aspects of the picture of Mozart that we've all developed over the over the years because of course you know when when you have as your image of an artist that he's this young child who just does everything naturally then it's hard to connect that with this incredibly sophisticated intellectual movement but of course one of the premises of some aspects of the enlightenment was that uh children and you know what Rousseau would call the noble savage and people who weren't uh from the most educated civilized worlds uh could have a lot to tell us and could teach us that you know rationality was natural and rationality was everywhere and could be trusted. So there's a sense in which Mozart's extraordinary talent was a sort of godsend to the enlightened mind itself, with a sign that the world was rational and did make sense, and was full of extraordinary forces that could bring us all uh, pleasure and insight almost automatically. Uh, His father, Leopold, who has occasionally got a bad press over the centuries for some mixtures of good and bad reasons, was uh, a, a, a very eccentric sort of enlightenment man himself. But then one of the things that I ended up thinking, well, as a result of writing the book, was that they were all pretty eccentric Enlightenment men and women, indeed, and all sorts of different sorts of people. That it was a very eccentric movement and full of uh, pulls in all sorts of different directions, full of marginal figures who suddenly found themselves in the mainstream, and also full of what we think of as mainstream figures who turn out to have thought some pretty extraordinary, really bizarre things when you look at it a bit more closely. 
How close was he to his father? Because in some ways they do seem to have this special bond, but in other ways uh, they almost seem to have been rivals. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing to have happened to someone as interesting and and rich and talented as Leopold Mozart himself was to have discovered that you're being outperformed by your son at such an early age. It's sort of a dream come true combined with the most excruciating slow motion nightmare being just transcended and dwarfed by this creature that you've created. Uh, and I mean, I think, I think again, Leopold has, has got a bad press over the years, partly because he does seem to have worked uh, Mozart and his sister Nanel fairly hard over the years of their, of their travels around Europe as prodigies. But I think it was understandable. And I think actually he was an, he was an extraordinarily sort of rich, complex figure with an odd relationship to, uh, to, to, to his own talent. He was a, you know, a talented minor composer himself, but a really talented pedagogue of music. He, his, his book on the violin was an important force, really a, a, you know, made him a man to be reckoned with uh, around uh, 18th century Europe. So, um, so it, it was complicated, and it was complicated for Mozart. I, in the end, I decided that uh, there's a sort of category that I use in the in the book, a sort of phrase that I ended up using, which is that it made Mozart have to be a genius at being a son. Um, of all the different things that he had to be a genius at, it was maybe one of the ones that came more slowly to him. You know, being a genius as a composer famously came rather quickly, but he gradually had to realize that it was going to take a lot of uh, psychological maneuvering. I think to keep a relationship with Leopold that was health, healthy and, and sane for both of them and productive for both of them. And that in the end would provide him with just, I think, the right combinations of nutrition and challenge. Uh, and in the end, someone to leave behind is sort of what all artists need. You've mentioned there the genius of Mozart and coming to terms with that. How difficult was it to come to terms with the musical genius, given that it did seem to, some things did seem to come so easily to him and at times seemed to almost overwhelm him? Exactly, yeah. It's, it's a really, I mean, I've, I had to think about this a lot uh, in, in going through it. And uh, I, I ended up thinking that it, to cope with being a, with, with his talent, his own talent was actually incredibly easy for him. I mean, it's one of the uncanny things about him that he just doesn't ever seem to have questioned it at all. He doesn't ever seem to have uh, taken a step back and said, "Wow, this is really bizarre." Even I mean, it just seems to have been how he uh, communicated with the world in such a natural way. What I think did come incredibly difficult uh, with incredible difficulty to him was coping with the fact that this wasn't going to change everyone's minds about him all the time and coping with the fact of being an ex-prodigy in particular. Uh, so coping in a way with the fact that his talent was exactly as enormous as he felt it was and could be treated with exactly the sort of casualness uh, with which he often treated it, but that that nevertheless was not going to be enough to turn him into the sort of success that he wanted to be. And what was hardest of all, I think, for him in some ways, was learning how to how to defeat his own talent and turn himself into something more interesting than merely a brilliantly talented prodigy, which is to say a real artistic creator and someone with complicated, dense, subtle, self-revising things to say about himself and his world and, 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 and the history surrounding him. And Patrick, even though his was the world of the 18th century, you could read the book and, re- and study his life from this position in the 21st century and, and find that so much of it is still relevant and, and still makes an impression today. Exactly. Yeah, that's another thing that I that I find about it. Once the music had opened up the 18th century to me, it also opened up in a way the whole relationship between that that part of our past and now, with with much more sort of richness that I'd 
anticipated. I guess that, you know, I was writing it for rather a long time, rather more years than I care to mention. Uh, and over those years, I think the legacy of the Enlightenment uh, became uh, sort of more and more interesting and I think rightly and understandably embattled in lots of ways. And all sorts of questions started to be asked about exactly what our relationship with it was. And, you know, lots of very important and necessary attempts to defend the Enlightenment, but lots of equally important and necessary attempts, not necessarily to critique it out of existence, but to put it in context and to see some of its limitations. And I ended up thinking that actually music can be an incredibly uh, powerful and acute and uh, and and refreshing uh, force in trying to think through those things. I ended up thinking that music was actually, there's a lot of people most involved with music were actually themselves ambivalent about the Enlightenment. They were immersed in it, but they were also questioning of it, as I think a lot of people were at the time. And I think, I, I guess in the end, I, I ended up thinking that that sort of rich, complicated uh, ambivalence about the Enlightenment is, is sort of what we need rather than the sort of pro and contra type debates that we uh, all too often get pulled into nowadays. Very good. Well, the book is called Mozart in Motion, His Work and His World in Pieces. It's published in hardback by Granta Books. The author, Patrick Mackey. And Patrick, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. 